Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Facility Dude Podcast. Here's your hosts, Bob Papa Dude Bittner and Ray Karawala. All right, welcome back to our Facility Dude Podcast. This is Ray Karawala. I'm here with Bob Bittner. Uh, Bob, I understand that uh, we have a guest today with us? Yes, uh, I'm really uh, honored today to have Tim Gasper with uh, Brady Train uh, out of the Energy Services Division of Brady Train. And uh, Tim and I have been friends for a long, long time. And Tim works in the performance contract uh, section for Brady Train. And I thought it would be good, Tim, to bring you in. And I know a lot of our clients have aging infrastructure, have problems with equipment, and they just don't have the funds to uh, replace those pieces of equipment. They don't know what needs to be replaced in some cases or where they're really things are really costing them money. So I know you've had a lot of experience with performance contracting. Can you just, uh, uh, well, first of all, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks for the opportunity, Bob and Ray. It's great to be here. And um, so can you just tell us a little bit uh, what performance, performance contracting is and why uh, somebody would want to consider uh, using a performance contract? Sure, be happy to. And um, I've been doing this for uh, over 20 years, uh, over 32 in the business as far as HVAC is concerned, but 20 of it has been in the performance contracting realm. And in those years, I've walked uh, tens, if not hundreds of millions of square feet of schools and community colleges and universities and other governmental units. And consistently, what I find is that year after year, the budgets are always cut back facilities. They're asked to do more with less. And more with less year after year means that there's more deferred maintenance than ever. And deferred maintenance always leads to uh, control systems that are out of date. That's, they, they run the systems 24 hours a day in a lot of cases because they can't shut them off. And so that means that the operating expenses are high. The energy costs are high. Um, repair costs are high. And things of this nature. So performance contracts address many of those issues directly and what it really is in the simplest terms is it's, it's a guaranteed savings program where the investment or the capital that's raised which mainly comes from bank sources is used to renew infrastructure and then the savings goes to pay for the loan so it is one of the very few ways and probably the most powerful way for a client to raise capital to make investments for energy efficiency and, and infrastructure improvements. So are you saying then that there's really not an additional amount of money that's needed that you're using things from savings to pay for this uh, capital improvement yeah, work? That's exactly what I'm saying. And it's, it's a, probably the second most powerful argument for performance contract is that you're working with existing appropriations. And so the funding sources don't need to change. They need to stay what they are today. And so for the commissioners, for example, if they're overseeing K-12 budgets, then that becomes uh, a no-brainer because there's no additional taxes required. And that is um, just a major win for the counties and for the governmental units. Tim, quick question. Do, do organizations currently know about programs like this? Do they know kind of you even exist? Many of them do, but there's probably... 80 or 90% of the market untapped today where they've not taken advantage of this program. So uh, in, the, in the years that I've been involved, uh, performance contracting has gone through generations of improvement and refinement, and the process has gotten a lot cleaner, 
and a lot more reliable. So I would say that largely, uh, if they do know about it, they haven't exercised the performance contract process, and many of them just need to. Tim, I know I know. sometimes in the early days of performance contracts, there were some shenanigans pulled that put performance contracting in a bad in a bad light, and some people still are carrying that baggage from a long time ago, even though they may not have been involved with it, they heard about it, and it may have been embellished, but tell us a little bit now about kind of what are the steps that somebody has to go through just to see if it's even feasible to do a performance contract. Mm -hmm. Sure, and if I could address uh, the early days of performance contracting, many of the projects were shared savings projects. In fact, shared savings programs exist today that are operations-based or behavior-based. And so uh, an extreme word of caution there because it's not the same as a performance contract. Performance contract is very heavy into investing in facilities. Shared savings deals oftentimes take money out of the agency or, or uh, K-12 and then no capital investments are made. If an organization is interested in, in a performance contract, then my best recommendation would be to contact an energy service company or ESCO, and one that you trust, one that you know, one that you've actually done business with, so that they can do very quick analysis to understand what are your key performance indicators for the facility. Because remember, the funding source is existing operating uh, spend, which includes energy and, and maintenance. And then knowing what those numbers are, comparing to um, averages, which we've got a pretty extensive database. So, so we know, and I know you, you all do too, at Facility Dude, uh, that know where the performance should be. So you get a very good sense then for what the opportunity might be. And then having the energy service company look at some of your facilities and then just do a preliminary report to say, we see this level of opportunity in your facilities and uh, therefore, here's what we would recommend going forward. So if you've got a, a relationship with an energy service company, then uh, by all means, bring them in and, and do a no, you know, no hooks attached type of analysis to get a sense for what the opportunity might be. So there's, you can come in, ask a, a Brady train to come in and take a look at it. Is there any cost associated with that uh, initially? No, there isn't. Uh, we're able to get through the facilities fairly quickly and having done so many of these, we understand very quickly and without a lot of investment of time or money of what your opportunity might be by looking at a few main things. So you come in and kind of take a, a big picture, put it in focus and see if there's opportunity there. Exactly right. And I know that um, you look a lot at uh, the energy cost, energy spend as part of that savings. How about other things like operational cost associated with that. If if you can do operational cost, do you get any pushback that they say, well, we're already understaffed, underfunded the way it is? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, and oftentimes the operating expenses beyond energy can add up very quickly. So if you have problematic assets that are requiring constant repairs, and if those repairs are documented, then you've got an opportunity to remove that asset, replace it with something new, then realize the savings from that. So generally speaking, those savings exist. However, oftentimes they're not well documented. And so any kind of uh, service that might help to track that and then enter those savings into the equation can make the project larger, more comprehensive, and more beneficial for the owner. So really good record keeping, good documentation about work that's being, been done, the cost associated with it is really a benefit to the client uh, in the long run about getting a bigger pot of money to 
be able to stretch it further to do more work, right? Exactly right. So Tim, you were you were mentioning uh, some problematic assets there. What are some normal system or, or, or equipment replacements that you normally see that are being affected here? And and we, we try to mix the um, portfolio of measures in a facility. Uh, we look at fast payback items such as lighting systems and we look at patrols as well. And they're oftentimes numbers one and two in the savings versus cost realm. And then we try to look at the heavier um, capital intensive assets that may have very little or no payback such as their handling units and, and other measures. So uh, depending on the need and the customer's um, goals, we will blend fast and slow payback to bring the term to somewhere around 12 years for a 15-year financing. But without the fast payback items, then it's very, very difficult or impossible to bring along the slower payback or no payback items that are really badly needed to make the facility work like it's supposed to. Tim, can you, can you include other things other than equipment Thing and lighting, can you include things like insulation? Can you include roofing or window replacement or window films, that kind of stuff? You, you absolutely can. And in um, lately, we have uh, really increased our focus on building envelope. Why? Because uh, every time I've been above the ceiling, almost every time, I see daylight. And you're not supposed to see daylight above the ceiling. So that means that there's no air barriers in many of these facilities. Well, how else do you get fresh air in these buildings? <laughs> that's, that's one way. You're right. Um, <laughs> but but we have um, a problem with with no uh, with air that's in being infiltrated because it's laden with moisture, especially in North Carolina and the Southeast. That becomes problematic for control setback. You can't turn your building back if there's infiltration constantly. So we look at very hard at trying to close those air gaps, and that includes caulking, weather stripping, things like that. Things with longer paybacks, such as glazing, um, you can do, and we have done, but you need to have really have those fast payback items available to help carry uh, the capital-intensive slow payback items like glazing and perhaps roof insulation. So like when you replace lighting that maybe give you a payback in one or two years, then that extra savings over the next 10, 12 years helps pay for those things that don't have a, as quick a payback, but really can help produce some overall savings. Absolutely. Tim, I know over the last uh, several years, 5, 10, 15 years, there's been a great emphasis. We can hardly pick up a trade journal that doesn't have some article in it on energy savings. New devices, new pieces of equipment, new lighting, new technology uh, all the way around. So there's been a lot of talk about there. Are there still buildings out there that uh, are run inefficiently, have uh, inefficient equipment, and is there large enough savings in those areas to really benefit uh, and get a big enough pot of money to do something? Because I would imagine that some of these are multi-million dollar projects that you're talking about. Is there really that much savings? That's a great question. And what we find is we find uh, a pretty broad array of KPIs when we look at a portfolio of facilities. Uh, to give you an example, just recently in, in the last two projects, we found several facilities, school facilities, K-12s, that were in the 50 to 60,000 BTU range per year. And then there will be 150,000 BTU building that, and it's the newer ones, for some reason they, when they're commissioned, they aren't, they aren't set up right or they have humidity issues and they're handling it with reheat. So um, those will pop up to really bring the average up for the district. Um, so that said, there, there is a lot of new technology out there that even if you have made replacements recently with lighting systems, maybe uh, back in the late 90s, 
with T8 bulbs, while the new LEDs are, are significantly um, outperforming many of these existing retrofits, even the ones that are non-T12. So uh, that is, is absolutely true with lighting, plus lighting controls have gotten less expensive and very, very common. And then beyond that, other efficient uh, boilers and chillers, for example, have gotten more efficient too. And then the implementation of speed drives has made a huge difference in, uh, in energy consumption performance and make the systems operate better too overall. So the answer is absolutely yes. So Tim, I know you've had uh, a lot of years of experience in this. What are the success rates that you have found? Do all projects come in like you had planned them? Do they save the amount of money? People say, yeah, this almost sounds too good to be true. Can it really work for me? Is it really successful? I bet it only happens to somebody out there, but it's not, it's not my building, it's not my project. What kind of success uh, have you seen in implementing a performance contract in your experience? Probably about the most successful projects that we've seen have been those that have not had low-hanging fruit that's already been harvested. So if there's been programs that precede performance contracting where it drops the KPI significantly, that might not leave enough left for the significant kind of investment that they might need for other for high uh, cost and low payback items. But we always seem to find something to help them and to make them better facilities, tighter temperature control and humidity control and, and better lighting too. So there, there always seems to be something that they weren't able to, um, to manage previously. Now, now Tim, if, if someone like Bob or I were looking for a performance contractor, what are some of the things that we should definitely not do before investigating? Mm -hmm. I would seriously consider looking at my plans for, for harvesting or picking low-hanging fruit. As I said a couple times during the interview, if that fruit is gone, if the fast payback items are gone, then your opportunity for capital investment, where you really need it many times, is diminished. Um, I would stay away from or really understand if I'm going to get into a shared savings program, what it is, what are the hooks, is there, is there a three or four year term where you locked into it and how much money are you really giving up that could be used for capital investment in your facilities. So you're, uh, so you're thinking really that like lighting, lighting seems to be an easy thing. It's easily identified. A lot of times they'll do it in-house sometimes, uh, but you would recommend if you're thinking about doing a performance contract, investigate the performance contract, whether it's feasible for you or not, before you go in and start replacing all these lights. That, yes, and that way you know for sure, am I, am I really approaching this the right way with the best overall strategy that will benefit my institution in the best possible way? Because performance contracting really is a holistic approach that will look at systems and system interaction. So if your light energy goes down, then your boiler energy will go up, but your HVAC energy will go down. And all this is reflected in the building modeling that we perform on most of our most of our facilities. And you can understand and look at all that in your first initial snapshot that you talked about earlier, taking a look at that, of what you can and can't do during that. Some of that comes out in the preliminary, yes, uh, but all of it comes out of the investment grade audit, which is the second step of the performance contract. Okay. So, and to talk just for a second about that. The preliminary work is done in, in our process. You'll actually select the energy service company first, and then secondly, you'll work into an investment grade audit where there's a commitment, a fund commitment from the agency or institution, where if 
if the ESCO performs the due diligence per the investment grade contract, and if the agency decides to walk away, then there is a, a fee that's, uh, that will cover the energy service company's costs. Because there's a lot of work and a lot of engineering time spent in, in analyzing facilities. Could the ESCO as well walk away during that time? Yeah, your FCS, yes. If the opportunity is not there, or if it's not a good business opportunity, Bob, for both the ESCO and for the agency, then indeed it's the right thing to do to walk away. So there's there's plenty of escape clauses and ways to um, back out of a, a project if indeed it, it fails to produce um, needed results. Or so when you go to that next stage of investment grade and you're making a, some type of a commitment, you both still have the ability to back out and not replace roofs and chillers and you're automatically tied into it so yeah. everything yeah. is laid out. Yeah, there's and, and knowing that and really being educated about how the process works is also something I would do um, very early in the process, which is a good reason, again, to connect with an energy service company that you trust, that you know. Good. Well, Tim, thanks for uh, being here today. We're going to talk next week uh, about uh, more of the financial components of a performance contract, and uh, we look forward to having you back next week. Thank you, Bob. Look forward to it, too. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for listening to the Facility Dude podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback about the show. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes and help other facility operation professionals just like you find the show. Email your questions or comments to podcast at facilitydude.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Facility Dude. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a great rest of your week.